Hello, and welcome to another edition of Bustle Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Um, welcome to 2022, Brussels Sprouts listeners. Uh, it's off to a fast and furious start. This week, we're looking to release a series of shorter episodes reacting to the week of diplomacy between Russia and the United States and Europe over Ukraine. On Monday, uh, it was the meeting between the United States and Russia in Geneva, largely to determine if there is a diplomatic solution to the crisis. Moscow issued demands that would fundamentally rewind time, reverse the Cold War's outcomes and reinstate spheres of influence and really rewrite the security order in Europe, including a demand that the United States and NATO provide a formal guarantee that Ukraine stay out of NATO and end US military support to Ukraine and other countries of the former Soviet Union. The United States, however, has said that Russia's security demands are non-starters leading to a possible impasse in the crisis. Uh, and while Monday's talks did not close the door on diplomacy, it's far from clear that the two sides will be able to agree on a satisfactory diplomatic solution and avoid a conflict in Ukraine. So questions are, what, if anything, did these talks accomplish and how might we expect events to unfold in the coming weeks? And to talk about that, we're really excited to welcome Mike McFall. Mike, welcome to Brussels Sprouts. Glad to be back. A very quick introduction. Uh, Mike McFall is the director of the Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. He served for five years in the Obama administration, first as senior director for Russian and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council, and then as U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. All right, so let's get right to it. What did you make of today's talks? Well, um... Better to have talks than war. Let's start with some obvious 30,000 feet things. Um, I think it's important that there's three rounds of talks, right? They'll move on to NATO and then they'll move on to the OSCE. Um, and I think if you were picking diplomats to lead these uh, negotiations, I think on the US side, uh, Deputy Secretary Wendy Sherman is a fantastic choice on our side. She's a very experienced diplomat uh, and a very experienced negotiator. Um, and on their side, uh, Sergei Rybkov, Deputy Foreign Minister. I, I know Sergei. I used to know Sergei really well. Uh, I am now on the visa ban list, so I can I can't travel to Russia. But I used to deal with him on a fairly regular basis for about five years. He's a very competent diplomat. Um, in many ways, their their best diplomat for dealing with the United States. So that's all the good news. Um, the readouts were, I would say, you know, largely positive in that they agreed to keep talking. Um, Ribkov said, we don't plan to invade Ukraine. I thought if I were Ukraine and then Ukrainians, that's welcome news. Um, does raise the question why you have all those troops on the border then, uh, Sergei. Um, and I, I thought that they both in their readouts were describing a possible way forward for a much bigger, larger negotiation about European security, but with nothing, nothing agreed, right? And in particular, the insistence on the Russian side of closing the door to NATO. And you know, when they're feeling really flippant, they talk about rolling back the doors of NATO to 1997. They're obviously still on that talking point, which is a, which is a condition that no American administration would ever accept. So. Better than, you know, could have been a lot worse. 
uh, but still a long ways to go. Did it make you any more or less optimistic about the viability of a diplomatic solution? I guess when I looked at the talks, you know, I, I thought they weren't particularly diagnostic. I don't think I, I didn't get what I was hoping for. And I'm sure what the Biden administration and European allies and partners were hoping for in terms of a signal about the way things are headed. I thought, you know, that, that Ryabkov really maintained maximum flexibility for Putin to ultimately decide. So that he expressed the optimism, and I think that would then maybe give Putin the ability to say, you know, he, he, Ryabkov made the statement something along the lines that the Americans are taking our proposals seriously. And, you know, so maybe that gives Putin the opportunity to say, look, we forced the United States to finally recognize our security concerns. Um, and it, so it could provide that off-ramp. But at the same time, I think he definitely underscored um, that the security guarantees are the number one priority. And obviously, the U.S. said that's a non-starter. So to me, it, it, it seems like he's left the door open to Putin to finally make the decision. Is, is that kind of how you see it? Uh, absolutely, because there's only one foreign policy decision maker that really matters in Russia, and that is Vladimir Putin. And most certainly, Sergei Rybkov is not a decision maker. It's clear he didn't have much wiggle room in his talking points. Um, he was there to deliver talking points. And, uh, and that's the way that system has been, even from when I worked in the government. It reminds me of the New START negotiations, where then Ambassador Antonov uh, um, was our interlocutor in Geneva, by the way, in the same city, in the same buildings. Um, and he was always on a very tight um, set of talking points that he couldn't veer from in, in speaking to our head of delegation, Rose Goddard-Miller. And that was mostly, most certainly true today. Um, I, I would say two other things, though. Um, one is, uh, and, you know, I talking to Russians and being on Russian uh, media from time to time. Uh, in one sense, Putin already has won an amazing for him uh, public relations coup. Um, you know, if you look at the Western uh, press coverage and you look at my Twitter feed and you look at, you know, Washington think tank circles, everybody's talking about NATO expansion. Everybody's talking about, you know, Gorbachev and Jim Baker. And it's even in the front page of the New York Times today, right? Uh, that's all anybody's talking about. And should we give that or not? If you look at some of the academics that are debating it, nobody is talking about all the treaties and agreements that Vladimir Putin has violated that his predecessors signed, right? So that's a victory. Uh, that's a huge victory. So he's changed the channel on us, right? Suddenly we're debating this issue that wasn't even an issue. That's a great advantage to him. And number two, you know, this is an obvious point to you, Andrea, but I want to remind your listeners, um, there, there's really no domestic politics inside Russia. So, so Putin doesn't need an off-ramp or not. He can sell whatever agreement comes out as a victory. Um, what we don't know is what he wants. And, and, you know, I've known Putin and I've followed him and I've written about him. I just counted the other day. I think I've written 80 articles with the word Putin in it. I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit uh, over the years. Um, 20 academic and 40 op-eds. So uh, my first one was 21 years ago. I just found it, just looked it up. Um, and yet I would say as somebody who's followed him rather closely for a long time, um, I don't think he has made up his decision about how he wants to operate. And, and 
and he is perfectly comfortable. This is another really key point. He is very comfortable with ambiguity and ill-defined sovereignty and uncertainty. Whereas when I worked in the government and you know, I think about the, the, the friends of mine and colleagues who are there now, uh, we tend to not like that. We tend to like, oh my gosh, we have a problem. We need to fix it. Uh, we need a solution. Um, whereas he's very comfortable with long-term ambiguity for two reasons. Um, and in fact, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a very senior uh, Russian um, government official just days before I left Moscow in 2014 about Ukraine. Um, and he said two things. He said, Mike, we care more. And so we have more leverage than you. And he said, two, you guys have really short-term memories. You forget. We don't forget. We, we, we remember things. And he said, mark my word, you're going to forget about this conflict and you're going to move on and you're going to have your China problem and your domestic problems. And that'll, that'll be just great for us. And I think about that in this moment right now, because, you know, maybe that's ultimately what Putin wants. But I want to be clear, maybe he still has, you know, uh, other designs for using force. And remember, those other designs, that's a continuum. That's not just march to Kiev or not. And so I don't think we know yet uh, what his ultimate plan there is. And frankly, he probably hasn't himself decided what he ultimately wants to do. He's going to wait this out and see what happens. Jim, before you pop in with one more, I know you're anxious to get in. Can, Mike, can I ask one more question is based on your experience negotiating with the Russians, I mean, how much of this could be a stalling tactic that Ryabkov comes out of this, you know, they've gone through this song and dance now with the United States and they'll do it in the OSCE and with NATO. Um, he expresses some optimism about how it's going, which could be in part designed to slow a U.S. response. I also think it really makes it harder for, for the European allies to really coalesce and, and stick it to Russia in the upcoming meetings if they actually think there's some viability that diplomacy yes. is still alive. So Great I mean, point. It's, it's, it could be plausible, right, that this is by, biding time for the military buildup to continue. That's, I mean, I got just to put run that by you, that that's still, I mean, it's still very much on the table. Yes, it's still on the table. I think it's an excellent point that if you're gaming it out on the Russian side, uh, you want the first meeting to be as the, the, the most positive so that when they show up in Brussels and they show up in Vienna, um, then they're like, hey, we're in the bilateral channel. We're making progress. But you Estonians here, you Ukrainians there, you're making all the trouble. So there's no doubt that that is just on the tactics of negotiations. That's a very smart uh, ploy by them or play. And we should just acknowledge for what it is. Um, and the second thing, you know, I'm just because I, I'm just thinking through START Treaty. I'm actually looking at a photo of me and President Obama on my desk here. I can even show you. Uh, there it is, um, where oh, President Obama is telling Medvedev in that phone call, it was one of the worst days of my life as a government official, that whatever you thought and whatever you may have heard or thought you heard about us giving concessions on missile defense, we can't go there with you. And, um, you know, throughout the entire New START negotiations, missile defense guarantees, you know, uh, just like Rybkov is saying about the NATO thing, it was they were saying about we need this in this treaty. And it was only at the very end of the negotiations that we finally got them off. And I hope that may be 
a parallel situation with uh, the NATO security guarantee because, you know, Putin, he has some real misperceptions about the West and misperceptions about the United States, um, you know, particularly about our wanting to overthrow him and all that. Uh, but he does, I think, have a very good understanding of the politics of the open door policy of NATO within NATO and the domestic politics in the United States of America about this issue. Uh, let's be crystal clear. Let's leave the academic theorizing aside. There is no way politically that President Biden could agree to what the Russians are asking. Uh, right now, his critics, some of whom are colleagues of mine, some of whom I work with here at Stanford and the Hoover Institution, the whole, the whole thing going into the next election is Biden is weak, Biden is weak, Biden is weak, weak on China, weak on Afghanistan. And if Putin invades Ukraine, he's weak there. And if he gives concessions, he's weak there. So I just think, practically speaking, Putin knows all that. And therefore, then he has to decide, am I using this card um, uh, to get these other concessions in other places? Or is it all just a, you know, a kabuki dance before he ultimately does uh, some kind of military intervention? Well, well, what do you think of the, um, the, you know, the story that was carried by NBC a few days ago? Uh, there was the, you know, it was later denied by the administration, but it kind of hinted that there was discussion about, you know, relooking the CFE treaty, relooking at the uh, conventional force balance in Europe, uh, and with the idea that that's really what Putin is going for. He would like to use this leverage to actually uh, go big, to, to go and get a, at a, a broad range of things. And that maybe there were some things in it for us as well that we could fix Kaliningrad, uh, the cruise missiles, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, and so we got a bit of a hint with NBC that, in fact, this is being discussed. Do you, do you think that really Putin is holding out for something like the Congress of Vienna, if you will, something that rebalances uh, uh, the conventional force posture in Europe? Or is that really just some of the maximalist approaches? And it's really his, his he's, he's going out to something much, much less than that, but enjoying watching uh, uh, Europe and uh, the U.S. And, and NATO and others wiggle a bit as as we're trying to figure them out and some fighting and sniping breaking out between Central and Eastern Europe about Biden, you know, throwing them under the bus. Or I think the French Macron today was saying this is something Europeans should decide, not the United right. States. Kind of enjoying watching the sniping going on, and and that and 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 that really scratches a lot of this itch as well. So. Where, where do you think he is? Is he really serious about the maximalist or is there a, another level that he's going to be content with? Well, again, I don't know. And you guys don't know. And President Biden doesn't know. And CIA Director Burns doesn't know. And Sergei Rubkov doesn't even know. Uh, that is my strong view about how their system works. Uh, Nikolai Patrushev doesn't know. Nobody knows except for Putin, right? So I want to say that modestly before trying to give an answer. Um, second, Jim, I, it's a great way to frame it. I think both of them can be true. And I think the sniping, the point that you made, is a really important one that gets lost sometimes on American audiences. The tension that is already forming uh, between different European partners, uh, between Ukrainians. I spend time talking to Ukrainians. They're quiet, mostly, 
but they can't, they're really, really unnerved by what is going on right now. I mean, think about it. Americans and Russians are meeting in Geneva to talk about their sovereignty. Well, well, hold on, why aren't we in the room? But they've gotta be careful, right? So that that is all happening, you're absolutely right. And that's all to the good if you're Vladimir Putin. And remember, another important thing to remember that within many European countries, uh, as well as our own, there are sometimes minority groups and sometimes you know, heads of state, if you're thinking about Hungary, that are more pro-Putin than they are pro-Biden. Right. Uh, and that, that those divides are real. And th- these moments exacerbate those tensions, you know, in Italy, in France, uh, you know, in Hungary and in the United States. Right. So he's, he's achieving all that with doing very little on the on the bigger picture. You know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think the Biden administration rightly wanted to test it. Um, and I think that's probably what. You know, the I don't think they wanted that that NBC story, if I'm thinking about it. And that probably was leaked by somebody in your former building that didn't like the negotiations that were about these projects going on. If I had to read between the tea leaves. Yeah, really. uh, Is somebody who used to deal with this, uh, you know, when I was in the government Uh, and full disclosure, I work for NBC News. uh, So I I need to say that before we go on. Um, But. But the truth is. CFE, Vienna documents, you know, missile defenses, INF, open skies, you know better than I do. Uh, A lot of these uh, treaties either are no longer in existence or don't really work. And so a grand argument, not a grand argument, a grand negotiation about how to enhance European security, including just more minimalist things like transparency, I think the United States has an interest in that. And I think a lot of our allies would have an interest. Of course, it would have to be reciprocal. And of course, you know, things are would be beyond the red lines, like open door, NATO has to be shut, things like that. But that bigger negotiation, that would be a very useful thing. Um, you know, as I like to say, we don't need a Yalta 2.0 minus the Brits, but we could use a Helsinki 2.0 uh, with everybody in the room. But I, don't, I honestly don't know what Putin's appetite is for that yet. Yeah, and I, guess, I don't think, unfortunately, that we're any clearer after the U.S.-Russia discussion. I guess the last question for you is, you know, we were talking a little bit about divisions within the alliance and allies and some of the sniping back and forth and how I think Russia's actions are designed to exacerbate those tensions. How are you feeling about alliance unity and cohesion if the rubber meets the road and we have to respond? Um, you know, do you think that we, meaning the United States and Europe together, will be willing to take a stronger stand this time around? That's certainly what the United States has tried to communicate to Putin, that we're going to do things we were unwilling to do in 2014. But how confident are you that we'll be able to do that this time? I think it all depends on the level of military intervention or coercive intervention, right? Um, and I think, you know, in in kind of the public debate about this, it, it all gets framed as invasion or not. Uh, but between full-scale military invasion with 100,000 troops crossing the border and doing nothing, you know, I can think of seven or eight scenarios in between 
from cyber attacks to limited military strikes to seizing Donbass um, or, you know, uh, a provocation, alleged provocation that they then respond to, right? And I am deeply worried. I, I remember, you know, living through August 2008 as a Biden, uh, excuse me, as an Obama uh, advisor during the campaign. And that was always my worst nightmare. And we even wrote about it. We even warned about it in April 2008. Like, don't take the bait, uh, Saakashvili, because they, they're setting a trap. And sure enough, something happened. And sure enough, there was a response. So I actually think we should applaud the Ukrainians that they have not done that yet. And I think that's the dog that hasn't barked. And, and that that's not easy to do, by the way, in a moment like this. But uh, what I worry about is if there's a lower level kind of thing, then there won't be unity, right? So you can ask our Estonian friends about 2007 and how they thought they were attacked and Nobody defined it as an attack. Uh, and, and Georgia 2008 was also ambiguous and, and, and therefore divided amongst our allies on how to respond. It was only annexation, even annexation, we didn't have the clarity that we should have. It, it took you know, more action in the eastern part of Ukraine and the shooting down of an airliner before you got unity. And so in between, there's a lot of space in there that I think Putin can play with. And I worry about that. Would you keep unity on some of these lower level kinds of uh, military or coercive actions that he might take? Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of the things that I worry about the most is, you know, where the Europeans will be if it's at a lower, you know, quote unquote, lower level scenario that everyone believes breathes a collective sigh of relief that we've somehow dodged a bullet. I promise that was my last question. But well, I, I want to add one more, though. I just thought of yeah, one I more. Yeah, I do have really one more, thing. too. I have okay. one more, though, which is... Well, hold on. I want to just yeah. add one more thing you just prodded me with, which is another really important thing that does not get enough attention in our American debate, which is there's a domestic debate in Ukraine as well about these issues, right? And there is a there's a school of thought in Ukraine that has decided the West is not gonna help us. Biden doesn't care about us. We've got to figure out a way to, 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 to negotiate with the Russians uh, on our own. Um, and if there is some kind of uh, intervention or something and, and the response is, is muted, uh, that faction within Ukrainian politics, well, especially elite politics, will grow. And I think that's a really important thing that we frequently forget. They're having a debate about, uh, you know, are we alone? And if we're alone, then we got to make our peace with these, these criminals. But, uh, and that will, that will push, push different groups in one way or the other, depending on how Putin responds. The one additional question I wanted to slide in here at the end, which is kind of given what's happened, and I guess there's still lots of question marks, so it's a little, it's hard to answer, but one of the deba debates in the community is why the United States and Europe aren't doing more now. So why is it that we aren't, and especially if we think, I mean, I, I, my understanding is that units are moving from the Eastern military district west, so that the buildup isn't over, it's still continuing. So while the negotiations are happening and the discussions on one stage, you know, the, the military, there's still troops moving. So should the United States and NATO be doing something more now? Should we be 
you know, really expediting in a different kind of way uh, our support to the Ukrainian military? Should we be pre-positioning forces on the eastern flank? Are there things, if we think this is trending in an unfavorable direction, that we should be doing before um, the provocations begin? Well, by way of explanation, I would say that the Biden team has decided that it's better to keep their powder dry and to keep it uh, private uh, about sanctions, for instance. Um, I had a different view on that, but that's that's by way of explanation. By way of what should be done, uh, I firmly believe that we should be giving as much military assistance, defensive weapons, and all the you know, with all the caveats to the Ukrainians as possible. And there's no reason to wait to do that. Um, I think you know the the more costly it is for any military intervention, uh, the better it is for Ukraine, the better it is for the United States and our NATO allies. And that's irrespective of, you know, the negotiations in, in about other things. But I know that that is not a view that everybody shares. So. Yeah, something that's debated. And yeah, to your point, I think the administration feels, especially with kind of movement of military forces, once they're moved, then it's no longer a deterrent. You lose the leverage if they're already pre-positioned. But Jim, did, did you want to add anything at the end? No, I think I think we've uh, I think I think we got to get Mike back to the TV screens. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the fa faculty meeting, Jim, TV later today, but I've got to go to a faculty meeting. Uh, uh, this was to talk really to you guys. Uh, let's keep in touch. OK. Yep, yep. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for helping us all uh, make sense of what's happening. It's a big week. Uh, it's likely to continue to be in the headlines for some time. So hopefully we'll circle back soon. Absolutely.